This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 65, February the 24th, 1984. We've had quite a week here with a series of very interesting visitors from South Africa, from the Justice Department in Washington, from pro-life and from other organizations. The climax, of course, is now at the end of the week, and we have with us Ari and Linda McMaster. Now, there are a great many economists in the United States. Most of them are theoretical. Very, very few of them know how to work in the marketplace and to make money as well as to talk about money. And Ari McMaster is one of those few. So, when we listen to him, we're getting very down-to-earth, uh, practical counsel, as well as a mastery of the theoretical. Ari, it's a pleasure to have you with us again. It's a pleasure to leave the snow country for a change. <laughs> we have also with us uh, our own Otto Scott, who will sit in to help with the interviewing. Uh, Ari, could you give us a general picture of the state of the economy today? I think we've seen a major shift in the economy that occurred at almost simultaneous with President Reagan's very optimistic State of the Union message. I think we've now entered the era of deficits with tears and that the U.S. dollar will be under pressure periodically over the next several years, determined by the rate of interest, which is uh, assessed here in the United States. Hmm. Well, what does this mean practically for people? What this means practically is in terms of our central bank, the Federal Reserve, they are increasingly faced with one of two options. Either recession as a means of again fighting inflation, which always brings high unemployment, or allowing inflation to kick off, which means we'll have uh, flight capital leaving this country, money that's flown in, that's, that's uh, flowed in from overseas, foreign investors from the Pacific Basin, from Latin America, from the Middle East, from Europe, who have come to invest in this country in our stock market, our bond markets, our U.S. government securities, because the U.S. dollar was seen as a haven of safety, and also because we had real high rates of interest, which made the dollar an attractive investment, that is no longer viewed with the, with, the, with the favorable attitude that it was over the previous two years because the reality of our federal deficits, uh, the reality of the fact that inflation is again heating up in this country has now created a crisis for our central bank, our Congress, our, our administration. And so what, what we're faced with at this accelerated point in the, in the business cycle is, is no good options. The only options we have are painful. If, they, if, the, if the Fed lets inflation kick off, then what we'll see is higher U.S. interest rates as foreign uh, investors who have financed a third of our deficit uh, leave, leave our shores in terms of their investment, with their investment capital. If they, don't fight in, if they do fight inflation, then we'll also see higher interest rates and, uh, and a recession. So, as, as I see it now, and it's a quite troublesome scenario, it looks like we're going to see higher interest rates either way we go. The only solution to that is to cut the, bu is to cut the federal budget uh, on both the guns and, and the butter side of the equation, and that's not a likely prospect in an election year. Well, it looks like the economy is just one of bad news then, and... Uh would you agree with me that we have a gutless administration and two gutless parties? Well, yes. They, they, first of all, they don't really understand money and economics. Secondly, they have no will, when they do understand, to face the issues. Thirdly, the, the fact that it's a political year makes their, uh, their trend toward expediency as opposed to principle even more exaggerated. Well, this adds up to a rather grim picture. If the government doesn't know what to do about it, excepting to compound the problem, which is what you're implying, 
is there any way that the citizenry can protect itself? Well, yes. When governments do not anticipate the future, the market will make its decisions for them. In other words, we won't live in status quo where things move along in a benign way, particularly at this volatile point in the economic cycle. The explosions we've seen in the precious metals in the last few weeks, gold, silver, and also now the, the drop in the U.S. dollar against the German D-Mark specifically, indicates that there's a radical shift taking place now, which will again cause uh, a political crisis stemming from this economic crisis. I think with regard to individual action, it's certainly no time to assume debt, because we are now at the in the inflationary stage of the business cycle, which means we're moving toward the maturity of this business cycle. Well, some years ago, people were advising everyone to get into debt because we're in an inflationary cycle and you would pay back with less dollars, less real dollars than you borrowed. I think the most dangerous thing that has happened that puts us at economic risk now in this country is that the rules of the economic game have, have, have changed since uh, 1980. What we saw in the 1970s was that it made sense to borrow because lenders subsidized those who borrowed money. In other words, borrowed money after inflation, after taxes, was subsidized by those who loaned it. Mm -hmm. But what happened, as in all markets, the understanding of the phenomena of inflation became widely manifest. Everyone learned what the time value of money was by late 1979, early 1980, and they have not forgotten that lesson. So what we spun out into was literally flipped into a whole new set of economic rules hmm. when the Federal Reserve saved the dollar in late 79 and early 1980 and interest rates short term went over 20%. What effectively happened was that no longer were, was the marketplace willing to subsidize borrowing. It became expensive and it also became risky to borrow because the real rates of interest have now stayed above the rate of inflation and in some cases after taxes as well. So here's the difference. In the 1970s as inflation took off you could borrow and get away with it because it was subsidized. Borrowing was subsidized. Mm -hmm. In the 1980s now as inflation kicks off already the marketplace is anticipating that inflation and charging even higher rates of interest. Do you see any limit to or do you see any uh, uh estimate of uh, what kind of interest rates, if this continues, one might expect? Well, if the Federal Reserve allows the money supply to continue to grow, and as the velocity or the turnover of money accelerates, those interest rates will move up accordingly and probably in anticipation of that growth in the money supply. In other words, let me make it simple. If, if inflation hits 12 percent, I think we'll very easily see interest rates at 15 to 20 percent. And the danger is because the fear of inflation is so manifest in our economy now due to the experience of the late 1970s that interest rates, because of the emotion of people, will move much higher, much faster than took place in the early, mid, and even late 1970s. Oh. In other words, let me, let, me, let me say it this way. The nature of interest rates, which is a governor on inflation, is such that as inflation heats up, commensurately we will see interest rates move up that will tend to offset that inflation to the extent that it weakens the U.S. economy. Well, if money becomes too expensive to borrow, the wheels will stop rolling. See, that, that's my concern right now, is that we turn the corner on longer recoveries and shorter recessions in 1980. And what we'll see now is shorter rec economic recoveries and longer, longer recessions as the trend turns down. Why? Because those high interest rates will slow down the economic recovery sooner than most economists expected and send us into a decline. Right now, for example, we have consumer savings, which is the lowest it's been since 1949, which is exactly the wrong thing at the wrong time for the American consumer with regard to longer recessions and shorter recoveries. Secondly, we're at the point in the economic cycle when business capital spending should increase. Normally, businessmen would like to have a 100% return 
on whatever the interest rate is in which they borrow money. So if they have to borrow money at 13%, they'd like to have a 26% return. Who is going to take those type of risk in this type of environment where interest rates are unstable and, and lending institutions are pegging interest rates at a variable rate that fluctuates with what with the prime rate? For example, prime rate of 11.5%, they may be paying two percentage points over prime. How can you plan as a businessman if you're living in an environment of that of that volatility. What they do is they cut back their spending, that short circuits the economic recovery and sends us off into a recession. What does this mean politically? <laughs> what this means politically is that I think the politicians are are going to be held accountable in an election year, which for from a political perspective is the last thing they really want to see happen. Because they they the normal political cycle is that you gear up, have a good economy in an election year, and then after the election takes place, then the economy bears the brunt of all, all of the monetary and economic excesses which occurred during the election year. I do not think that will occur this year. I think what we'll have is a political crisis this year prior to the election generated by an economic crisis. I expect, if my work is accurate, that following the 4th of July of this year, the, the real pain economically with regard to return of recession, high interest rates, and inflation will again become uh, a, the primary issue in this political year. That doesn't bode well for Mr. Reagan. No, it doesn't bode well for Mr. Reagan. I, my perspective was that Reagan stated the Union message and the peaking of the U.S. dollar was akin to Joe Theismann prior to the Super Bowl. Uh -huh. Last year, you went to Guatemala to give economic counsel to President Rios Montt and his cabinet. Before you left, you prepared what was virtually a book on the economic implications of debt and its relationship to the biblical laws concerning debt and slavery. Would you like to comment briefly on some of those premises of your perspective? Well, basically, the root meaning of the word debt is death, D-E-A-T-H. And so the wages of sin is death, whether it's the sins that most Christians consider sin, such as theft, immorality, but also it's, it's, it's death economically. And in, in uh, reorganizing that work that I did for Guatemala, I've now come up with 35 points that, to my mind, are absolutely devastating in a deathly way of how debt money and, and debt negatively affect an economic system. You see, we have become accustomed to living with what is known as the business cycle in this country. But the business cycle is nothing more than the expansion and the contraction of the use of debt, the use of credit. In a godly system where you have honest money, not debt money, growth should be linear and consistent without all these oscillations of pain, booms and busts. They wouldn't exist. They're a natural phenomena in a godly economy. So in this linear cause and effect growth economy, in a Christian economy, you would be able to plan ahead accurately and lead into what I call a, a prosperous area of wealth for all. There's some other things about debt that, I, that I've come across. In, the, in pagan cultures, among the aborigines, anthropological studies have shown that the people take their wealth to the pagan priest at what's known as potlatches, and they smash that wealth. It's a sacrifice to the gods. That's no different than what the American people have done as they've taken their money to the international banks who have been loaned it to communist powers, as well as the third world countries, who have no intention of ever paying that money back to the tune of $850 billion. Our wealth, as pagans, has been smashed. Those are uh, payments to the gods of liberalism. Right, the gods of liberalism being the gods of humanism. And uh, what we have, you know, historically in this country, we saw the importance of separation of church and state. But it's not often recognized that not only did we see the early Christian founding fathers see the importance of separation of church and state, they also saw the separation of church, state, and economics. You know, the three parts of man's nature, his spiritual nature, his mental nature, his physical nature, 
are manifest in the view, in, in a man's in our, in a society's view of God, man, and the law, and the three institutions that are affected or are constituted by that philosophical religious view are government, religion, and economics. And what I've come to in terms of the abstract relationship of those three is that government is religion applied to economics. Because government basically is the applied uh, religion in terms of the right or wrong ethics, morality of the people. And those laws then frame human action. And human action is the definition of economics, the economic marketplace. Foreign banks have also lent money to all these third world countries. What are the foreign banks doing with their debt? Now, they're stuck, too, well, or have been until now. Right. Uh, there's been a coordinated effort through the International Monetary Fund, through the Bank of International Settlements, through the Export-Import Bank, and the World Bank, by which the major Western European, Japanese, and, and U.S. multinational banks have funded and rolled over and continued to fund uh, these, these uh, worthless loans to third world countries as well as uh, Eastern Bloc communist powers. But the Europeans are, are more shrewd than are the bankers in this country. For example, the Swiss banks, the big three there, uh, only have 10% of their loan portfolios in these loans to third world countries and communist powers. In some of the banks in this country, the loans to third world countries exceed by over 100% the equity hmm. of our multinational banks. Furthermore, there's another point here that's important, is that the European countries have been discounting that worthless third world paper to American banks who have bought it. <laughs> well, <clears throat> do the American banks walk out on this limb because they have guarantees from the American government? I think unquestionably that's the case. We saw clearly last last fall in terms of the $8.4 billion International Monetary Fund bailout, whereby U.S. taxpayers effectively guaranteed and, and bailed out the banks for these poor third world loans, that our multinational banks like Chase Manhattan, Bank of America, uh, Citicorp, uh, Chemical Bank, have been willing to, to make these, these high interest rates loans for no other reason that they can roll them over and earn the interest on the loans. Why? Because the American taxpayers through their politicians, have effectively become guarantors. Right. So ultimately, we will be paying the banks back. That, you know, it's a real insanity. We put our money into the bank to work for us, and also as a, as, as a storage depot, a haven of safety. And yet we have to pay to get our own money back yeah. out of the bank. I mean, the Caribbean pirates never had it so good. Then what should the... Christian do in this situation? The, the Christian is in a sense, until we reform a whole mon our entire monetary system, trapped because legal tender, which the government defines as the currency of the realm, is in fact debt money. All of our money today is debt money. So we're limited in what we can do in terms of, uh, uh, of being able to how we pay our taxes and, and, and carrying on the normal business transactions. My perspective has been that there's some diversity that's advised overseas if, uh, if people have those type of assets in terms of Swiss francs. I have favored U.S. gold coins, numismatic coins, such as the U.S. gold double eagles, St. Gaudens and Liberties. For the smaller investor, U.S. silver coin pre-1965, commonly known as junk silver. Mm, there's, there's been an interesting diversification into gemstones. I like holding some cash, actual greenbacks for emergencies. I like holding uh, uh, normal business uh, uh, account balances as much as possible in money market mutual funds that invest solely in 90-day U.S. Treasury bills. So you have a functional ability to operate in our economy. And I, like, and I think it's very important to be out of debt, not to be overextended, to invest in areas that, that you're familiar with on a local level 
and also in terms of, of, of meeting the needs regarding goods and services of the people on the local level in a way that can be extended to a border economy during a, a financial breakdown. Would, you, would that include investing in local service companies and things like that? Most definitely. However, I think, I think what's going to happen in the next recession that hits is the only sector of the economy which, is, which has not yet been hit hard by a recession has been the service sector which is 60 to 70 percent of our economy now. We've seen the real estate industry hit, we've seen the industrial sector hit hard, uh, steel, automobiles, we've seen the petroleum industry hit, and the only thing that has yet not been nailed is the service sector, and my guess is the service sector will be hit this next time around. So I, I would be selective in what service sector industries I invested in. Well, for instance, you could put some money in a local plumbing outfit. Look, now that's now that's a service sector with uh, investment repair uh, repair service sector uh, right. areas or things I think I think are very popular. In fact, my work in study of uh, studies of third world countries and undeveloped countries where there are sh shortages indicate that those type of businesses always do well because when you can't get new goods and services or you can't afford them, then investing in a service sector repair business, plumbing, TV repair, small appliance repair, things of that nature, are always do very, very well because that's a way that people can attempt to maintain their lifestyle at the same time with reduced income. How many people have already uh, attempted to protect themselves in this country by going into gold? I have been surprised at the movement, the extent of the movement of investment in gold in the past couple of months so early in what appears to be a new bull market. Normally you don't, ex you don't see such a widespread diversification of capital in the, into the precious metals until the news of, uh, of gold is on the headlines of the, of, of the newspapers and, and, and widely broadcast in the media as being uh, an excellent investment, but now people have become knowledgeable, and I uh, I noticed that uh, Friday a week ago there were no U.S. Uh, gold coins in terms of St. Gaudens or Liberties available either in this country or in Switzerland. Uh, the reason being they were expecting the premium to go up again. Now what that means is that the demand has become such that they are again increasing uh, the price of those coins with regard to bullion coins. I think there's only one thing that will, that, that can, at this point in time, that can knock down the price of gold and silver, and that is sharply higher U.S. interest rates coupled with such a severe recession that it sends the economy tumbling into a debt contraction in the private sector. About how many Americans have already gone into gold, would you guess? The numbers I've seen on that, in terms of actual commitment in, into precious metals, is approximately 6 million, certainly less than 10 million, which is a very insignificant uh, figure, 3 to 4% of our population of 234 million people. However, there are surveys that show that approximately 35 to 40% of the American public ha has, at some time, considered and will consider in the future investing in the precious metals. So what's the point? If that projection or that intention it, it becomes manifest, if we move from 3 to 4 percent of the population which invest in gold now to 35 to 40 percent, then we could see an absolute rush into gold that could send it over $1,000 an ounce almost overnight. If 5 percent of the institutions who manage investment portfolios in, uh, in stocks and bonds, if those institutions put 5% of their funds in the metals, we'd see a rush into it. We'd see, we'd see 850 new highs, $1,000 an ounce gold very quickly. Well, assuming that this scenario works out even roughly, mm -hmm. uh, what you're really saying is that we're going to go into a recession this year, which will lead to a democratic victory at the polls, and uh, next year would be probably worse. Uh, what would you imagine the Democrats would do? Well, first of all, the, indi the statistics I have is that 60% of the voters will swing either to 
from Republicans to Democrats or vice versa, based upon economic factors. Yes. I think what will happen this year is that the central bank, the Federal Reserve, will be forced with the decision of saving the system, saving the U.S. dollar by sending interest rates higher and the U.S. into a severe recession, or letting the dollar slide and gold and silver go through the roof. I think it will be a very critical choice. I do not think we have anything other than those two very severe either-or options this year. If they decide to save the system and let interest rates skyrocket and the U.S. economy plummet, that, in my opinion, now is only a short-term solution because if we have a Democratic uh, administration in 85, we will have increased federal spending. We will have capital from this country flow offshore, which will tend to send interest rates even higher. And with every 1% increase in unemployment, the federal deficit increases by $28 billion. So a recession at this point in time compounds the deficit problems. There are no good answers aside from major slashes in, in the federal budget. Do you think it's conceivable that the Democrats would repeat Mr. Roosevelt's uh, approach and declare a state of national emergency? I think I think that's a very real possibility, uh, certainly preceded by exchange controls, international currency exchange controls. I would expect that would be part of the emergency uh, reaction. Well, normally they'll do things piecemeal, and it'll be curious for me. It's curious for me. I'm, I'm going to watch very carefully because if these things become manifest prior to the election, how much, how much action in these areas with regard to limitation of economic freedom will a current administration implement prior to an, uh, a key election this fall? So there's a certain amount of checkmate built into the system in terms of, in terms of political strategy versus economic reality as it occurs between now and election this fall. You know, some years ago in the 20s, a German novelist wrote a book entitled The Sleepwalkers. Uh, do you recall that? I don't book? recall that, no. A very grim account of what was happening to Germany, and a prophetic one, because he saw the people as stupidly and blindly, politicians and uh, the people in the streets, walking to destruction. And it would appear that we are sleepwalkers now, and that both parties are made up of sleepwalkers who have no awareness of the precipice that is ahead. Uh, it requires some real stupidity to be in politics on the national level today and uh, go on presenting a brave front about solving problems by getting election. Well, culturally speaking, the parallels with the Weimar Republic become more and more pertinent every year with the growth, expansion of pornography and so on. We're like Berlin, 1929. If we have Berlin's experience of an economic debacle affecting the currency and all the rest of it, all the banks in Germany at that time had to close their doors. That led to dictatorship. Now, the only people that I can think of in the United States that would favor such a solution would be the Marxists. No, Otto, that's interesting that you, that you bring us back to the German example, because increasingly in terms of my studies and, and, and my work, uh, that is the closest example that I find that we are paralleling, that we are moving toward, it is, the, is the German type of dictatorship, where humanistic law is carried to its, to its logical conclusion. Well, there was a Washington attorney, a woman, who wrote a book a number of years back called Our Emerging Fascist Economy. Yes. And she analyzed fascism as the facade of capitalism, in which the disparity of incomes is retained. But all the basic priorities of management are leached away and held by the government. Well, the madness of the American consumer is demonstrated by his willingness to borrow for consumption rather than even investment. So it shows me that consumer spending is two-thirds of our GNP, of our gross national product. 
This illustrates to me, demonstrates very clearly that the American consumer has no understanding, basically, of economics and finance in any rudimentary sense of the word, and they expect the government to solve all those problems. So when the hue and cry of economic pain becomes manifest in late 84 or 85, I do expect to see government come riding out on its white horse and, and control people, which is one of the most insidious ways they can be controlled, and that is economically. Well, this is what John Adams called the old trick. I'm not quite positive how he put it, but I'll paraphrase it. He called it the old trick of using every emergency as an excuse for an expansion of authority. The way to escape that, I don't think any of us escape the collective sin, a uh, judgment of sin in the society. I think one way to minimize it, though, is by living in small towns, being out of debt, staying self-sufficient, being a member of a community, being a member involved in a local church, having things such as a garden, milk goats, things of that nature, so uh, so you're not in an area where you're dependent upon governmental services. Where My study in, of economic uh, times of, of crisis show that the cities bear the, the brunt uh, of the distress during the hard times, just as they reap the best of the good times economically. And, and the very nature of government control is where you have concentrations of people, they're more easy to, to, to manipulate and, and, uh, and to uh, take away their freedom. Well, of course, when you have a population and, you, and a government, which both agree that the government is responsible for the quality of everyone's life, there's no way around the expansion of authority in terms of emergency. The people will demand those chains. Yes. See, we live with the illusion that government is God. But that is the ultimate distortion of, of reality, particularly in the economic realm, because government is an economic parasite dependent upon the tax in intake, the revenues from the people. And so what we're seeing is literally an approaching time when government, the parasite, the economic parasite, consumes the host, which is the productive element of the economy. That's what created the problems in Germany. I don't see any prospect of getting out of this impasse and this disaster except a Christian community awakening, recognizing that what is happening and what will happen is the just judgment of God, biting the bullet and being ready to say, let's rebuild from the ground up. Uh, I don't believe that any country of any consequence is going to survive this century and the disaster ahead. Would you care to comment on that? No, and I don't. I, well, I agree with that, and particularly since the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency, all of the countries of, of our globe are impacted by what occurs in this in this country by means of our currency, and also by by way of the fact that we have the largest economy globally. But what we're seeing in terms of the theological battle as it's fought in the on the economic front is a confrontation between men creating something out of nothing, playing God, fiat uh, currency, fiat U.S. dollars, backed by nothing, created out of thin air, as debt, versus real money, which is linked ultimately to some commodity, such as gold, wheat, silver, whatever. And we're seeing even now, and this is interesting, Presently, now, 25% of world trade internationally occurs through barter, which means real money, real commodities, are the basis of exchange again. And between East and West countries, 50% occurs through barter. So we are seeing, as this old system dies, this, this illusionary fiat currency system that we have now and credit system dies, we're already seeing that vacuum started, starting to be filled in international trade by a godly perspective tied to reality, meaning real money, uh, being manifest in terms of commodity exchanges. Well, you have in the Soviet a, com a country, a nation that's operating without money. They have a local script they call rubles, but you can't use those rubles if you're a citizen to buy something without a special permit from the Communist Party, which allows you into the top stores. Uh, without that, with just the rubles, you can't buy anything. So money, 
in the Western sense, has been disposed of in the totalitarian societies of China, Russia, Cambodia, and so on. In other words, it is conceivable uh, that money, if it proves to be worthless, will collapse in the West, and the West would swing toward a totalitarian system where uh, you would have nas- what you have now. You have national currencies which are of very little value internationally. Uh, could I change the direction of our thinking? Because there's something important I feel should be introduced here. In your uh, newsletter, The Reaper, you've done something over the years that is unusual. Um, first, unlike most economists, you've seen the relationship of the land, of the earth, to economics not just the marketplace. And in connection with that, you've seen the relationship of weather to economics and the marketplace. So that you've uh, commented on the weather, you've had uh, reports on the weather. Would you like to develop the relationship of what's going to happen weather-wise to the economic crisis that is facing us? All right. Economists tend to be trendy, caught up by their culture and the myopic perspective of of their culture. Eighty percent of our people in this country live in the city, so we have primarily an urban economics, an economics that focuses just on the labor side of the economic equation. Well, that's only half of the economic equation. Even though man is either the ultimate predator or the ultimate resource, There are two factors of the economic equation. One half is land, one half is labor. The study of of land, particularly as it's impacted by climatological changes, such as the distresses we've seen in this country in in the recent years, floods, droughts, tornadoes, severe winters, every time in history when those type of major changes occur in the land side of the economic equation, in order for people to maintain their lifestyles and to get along, they are no longer tolerant or willing to put up with the obese, inefficient, uh, overbearing bureaucracies which have ruled over them during good economic times. So the whole Reconstruction movement has the forces of climatic change on its side because without exception, historically, during these times of climatic Uh, changes and disruptions, what you have is people becoming more religious, more conservative, more independent, and increasingly responsible. Uh, I was visiting with a friend of mine who is a consistent evolutionist, so in terms of our presuppositions we differ, but in terms of our conclusions that we've drawn from the evidence concerning the climatic changes and their impact on the U.S. economy and the U.S. government in the 1988 to 1992 time period, What we came to is that both of us think that Western debt capitalism and the United States federal government as it now exists and operates will meet its major time of crisis during that era, the 1988 to 1992 time period. Why? Because the nature of tidal forces, uh, uh, high tidal forces during that time period triggered by planetary alignments will, will, if past history holds true, increased earthquake and volcanic activity, which will lead to more dust in the atmosphere, a cooler planet, which makes the weather more variable and more harsh, thus leading to economic distress, resulting in political changes. What will happen to grain production if those things happen? Well, the conclusions of, or the the evidence suggests at this point that the correct conclusions to be drawn is that Canada will lose its uh, grain growing areas and will revert to hay production as will the northern tier of states such as North Dakota, South Dakota and uh, Washington state which are primary wheat growing areas now that they will become hay producing areas and that the grain growing areas will shift further south and we will lose a good portion of our so-called breadbasket. What will this do to the Soviet Union? The Soviet Union will be devastated. I frankly do not see in terms of 
in terms of economic reality, their centralization of planning with regard to economic policy, the growth of their Muslim population. I don't see how the Soviet Union can survive by the year 2000. Mm -hmm. I doubt if they can survive through the year 1992. I'm inclined to agree very strongly. Well, Louis Toms doesn't agree. Uh, he's an ambassador to a Latin American country now, Colombia. And he's made a study of the Mongolian methods of war, which are not based upon a sound economic system. That's the least of their concerns. They, uh, they are predators, and they exist on tribute. The Soviet Union is existing now on tribute both from Eastern Europe and from the United States and from the West. This is a disguised form of tribute, but we're paying tribute just as definitely as the ancient Chinese paid tribute to the Mongolians. Yes, the number one recipient of foreign aid in this in the century has been the Soviet Union. So economically, the Soviet Union is an impossible case, but it isn't, I don't think, basing its future destiny on economics. It's basing its destiny on the fact that it will defeat us, not necessarily in war, but put us in the situation of Finland, and they will then live off our product. Well, the most dangerous time to confront a bear, in this case a Russian bear, is when it's wounded. And, th and that's the dark side of, of, of the prospect, is that as an empire, any empire, Russian or, or, or U.S. empire, becomes threatened with its own extinction, it becomes far more dangerous because it moves out in a violent and aggressive way. And I think... Uh, that see that also confirms my work with regard to the U.S. war clock that shows that projects that the greatest time that we th we face with regard to a military confrontation with the Soviet Union is also this 1988 to 1992 time era. That would be assuming that we'd be isolated. The Central uh, America would be lost. Yes, but in, in terms of the Soviet military policy, that that there's a considerable debate there with regard to. Of course, they spend a greater percentage of their GNP on their military budget than we do, but their GNP is much smaller than ours. And because of the bureaucracy, as all bureaucracies are, they're inefficient. Look how poorly they've performed in, uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, the morale is so low. The, the drug abuse and alcoholism among, among Soviet troops is very high. And one, one wonders if we're not looking at two empires in terms of Western debt capitalism as well as the Soviet Empire, both of which are collapsing, and uh, one wonders which will collapse first. It may, it may be both, in fact, maybe uh, like both fighters on the campus, and whoever happens to struggle to his feet before the final uh, count of ten wins. Well, the difference is that they have a coherent strategy and we don't. Well... You, you had some comments on that the other evening, Rush. Yes, I find it hard to believe that they can be efficient in any area. And their coherent strategy probably presupposes that we will go on producing as we are. But supposing the grain production of Canada and the United States collapses, what then will they do? They are so thoroughly dependent on our grain. Uh, some have theorized that they are seriously considering moving southward into Iran and adjacent areas so that they have a good climate for uh, the production of grain. I'm sure they're planning that because they're trying to cover all bases. But the disaster that is coming is going to knock their props out from under them. And we are the props. Yes, 95% of the technology the Soviet Union has has either been given to them or they've stolen from us. The loans of Western debt capitalism is what has kept that empire surviving. A good example is Poland. Conclusively, the American people want the Polish people to be free. And yet it is our government which has backed our banks which, who have continued to roll over the $28 billion of loans that we've made to Poland with American, American uh, workers' money that has supported that government. Well, that's where the incoherent strategy comes in. Yes, you know, we, we, support, we support our enemy economically and yet build up the industrial military complex to fight him 
And that's not hard. That's hardly a strategy. That is no strategy. It's it's mm -hmm. it's it's a conflict between the expediency of greed in both the military-industrial complex and in terms of international trade. Right. Well, of course, uh, I don't like the term military-industrial complex because my feeling is the military wants peace. They're the ones who are out in front. I think our administrations, Republican and Democrat, and our bankers and our industrialists are the ones who, with greed, are pushing us into uh, a crisis situation. But uh, I think we have a different temper in the military. When I speak of the military-industrial complex, I'm not talking about the, the patriots who are in the forces as, as such, but rather the, the, the complex of, of ordering a machinery and materiel yeah. by which a cotter key that we can buy for 12 cents in a hardware store, the American taxpayer pays $13 for or a Doppler lift stand that cost $1,000 to build, build, we get billed $35,000 for, or a couple of wrenches that we can buy for under $9 end up costing many hundreds of dollars. That's the excess yes. I'm speaking of. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'd agree emphatically there. Well, we are facing then crises on the political, on the military, on the economic, and also on the climate fronts. Are there any other areas where we're facing a crisis? Well, well, any, <laughs> see, crises, as I see it, will, will become manifest unavoidably wherever men become irresponsible and refuse to, to uh, take care of things as much as possible on the local level. Let's make that easy. The three largest items in the federal budget are welfare spending, the military budget, and interest. Well, usury or interest, which is the third largest item in the budget now, $100 billion a year in compounding at exorbitant rates, if we had an honest money system and a biblical-based system, we would not even have a federal debt. We wouldn't, much less interest on the federal debt, so that would be eliminated. If we moved into a responsible military posture, much in terms of defense, much like Switzerland has, where we have local militias, people are trained, we have civil defense systems, uh, procurement is handled on, on an ethical and a cost-effective basis, then we would not have need for the military budget. Sixty percent of our military budget is spent overseas. It's not spent to defend mm -hmm. this country whatsoever. So we have huge savings that are potential there. Thirdly, if the church did its job with regard to the health, education, and welfare needs of the people, then on the local level, we would not have the spending that takes place in, in the butter side of the federal budget either. Interesting that in terms of safety nets, safety nets, if you took the bottom 10% of the people in this country in terms of poverty and distributed money to them directly, the families would receive an annual income of $48,000 a year. Mm -hmm. That's how much money is wasted in the bureaucracy. It's well, the bureaucracy that chews up the welfare money. Think yes. of all the jobs it provides for those who dispense our charity. See, that's what happens. Is what bureaucracies do is fill the vacuum of personal Christian irresponsibility. And what happens is people get paid to perform no productive good or service in an economy, which leads to poverty. That is why the growth of bureaucracy is directly correlated with increasing poverty in any society and ultimately tied to uh, uh, irresponsibility. What you've been saying, of course, implies that the basic crisis is the crisis of personal responsibility. Yes. A religious fact. So there has to be a religious answer to that. Let me tie that together. Man is made in the image of God, formed from the dust of the earth, which speaks of both his spiritual and his economic nature. Man is the only one of God's creatures that has economic or financial worries, which tells us it has to be a, a spiritual concern. The whole nature, the basic nature of Christianity is based upon covenant and contract. Christ's work here on the earth 
provided restitution for man, which was a contractual uh, action, by which imperfect, imperfect man could again have fellowship with a perfect God. The, that was a moral act. The nature of business, the nature of free economics that always leads to prosperity is based upon the ability of men to covenant or contract horizontally with each other, to be independent. Any time a businessman contracts or, or a buyer and seller contract, what they have consummated is a moral act by which each agrees to be responsible for what whatever they contracted for. Each is thus accountable. And so we see morality, accountability, responsibility, and ultimately prosperity as well as freedom all linked together in covenant and contract. Whether it's on the spiritual realm and with regard to Christians obeying and keeping God's law as a part of his covenant, or it's in the business realm by which all of us buy and sell in the marketplace on a day-to-day -day basis. His creation is a reflection of his theology, and it's based upon covenant and contract. And they're inescapable. And where we lose our Christian basis, we will ultimately lose our prosperity. Whether we're looking at Deuteronomy, where we're looking at Proverbs, where we're looking at whether we look at 3 John 2, Older New Testament clearly shows us that Christian fidelity to God's principles results in prosperity, and on the other hand, where we become negligent and we and we either commit sins or we have the sins of, of, of omission, the, the result of that is poverty. And I think what this country is seeing is escapist Christianity yes. will no longer be able to live with the illusions of its false theology, which are not tied to the real world where God has made us responsible. Yes, I wrote a while back, you remember, a position paper on box theology. Yes. The perspective that limits the realm of Christian faith to a little corner and leaves the whole world to the devil or to the state. And nowadays there isn't much difference between the two. But it's that perspective that has destroyed us. So I feel the churches have a major share of the blame for the situation we are in today. When you realize what has happened in the past few years, uh, churches financing terrorists in Africa and elsewhere, churches opening their doors to the hippies, uh, homosexual uh, festivals in cathedrals, uh, all kinds of obscenities taking place in the churches, Catholic and Protestant, and both equally guilty before God. It's a frightening thing because we're told in the Bible that judgment begins at the house of God, that where there is the greatest accountability, there is also the greatest responsibility and judgment. So I do believe that unless the church repents, and makes the faith again relevant to all of life, we're going to see a frightful judgment from God upon the church. What you're really talking about is the collapse of leadership, uh, clerical leadership, yes. as well as sectarian leadership. And as I understand this sort of a sequence, what happens is a wiping away or wiping out of that false leadership and its replacement by better leaders. People will tend continue to follow their habit patterns even when they're wrong until they fail. And what we're looking at is basically a breaking down of all of the false habit patterns which have gripped us for the better part of the century. And out of that will come a reconstruction. I think probably unlike that that was seen in this country since early Christian America, 1740, era of Jonathan Edwards. I agree. One of the things that uh, I feel the Christians need to do is to recognize that this crisis is a judgment from God. And if we don't welcome God's judgments, we're going to be under them. We have to see them as his justice in operation and an opportunity for us to rebuild. That's the nature of investment. With every risk, there is an opportunity. And I view this time as a time of short-term pain that will be necessary to break the illusions that we operate under presently 
so that we can more fully manifest a godly system in time longer term. Two points I want to tie into your comments on the church. The church is responsible for the spiritual edification of man, which gives him that ability to take God's long-term view, that gives him the rules of human conduct by which cooperation is manifest, and cooperation is the basics of, basis of economic prosperity. It also gives him the willingness to assume short-term pain for that long-term gain, both spiritually and economically. Well, it's only been because our Christian early Christian America built this economic base that has allowed the church to live with that illusion of box theology. So the box theology is by definition only a short-term phenomena because it, it inevitably, as time moves on, confronts the reality of its era in the physical universe of economics. And that's what we're seeing right now. That's why we're seeing increasingly the escapist Christians looking more and more, as we've discussed, at the post-millennial perspective. Why? Because they're having to confront the reality of pain in the real world in terms of how humans have to live. We have just a few minutes left, and before I give you a chance for a final word, Ari, could you tell uh, our listeners about the Reaper, how they can uh, subscribe to it, and how much it costs, and the address? Okay. The Reaper is uh, an almost weekly economic financial advisory letter. It comes out 44 times a year. It's priced at $195 for a year for all 44 issues. And I have a toll-free 800 number they can phone, 800-528-0559. And our Phoenix office will handle any and all inquiries uh, concerning the Reaper. Thank you. Now, Otto... Is there something you'd like to say by way of conclusion? No, I think that has been one of the most sweeping discussions I've ever in, uh, partaken in. Uh, but I do find I'm, I'm very pleased to hear at the very end of your comments a note of hope. Oh, I'm very optimistic long term. You see, the nature of trend changes is that just when things look the darkest as the, as the market starts to bottom, it's just prior to its turning up. You know, you hear the old cliche, it's always darkest before the dawn. Right. So is true in, in the swings of economics and the swings of markets. When everyone is increasingly bearish as the market declines and news is pessimistic is when I begin to light up because I know we're very close to a trend change. So too, and with regard to the death of humanism in Western civilization now. So I'm short-term pessimistic. But I looked at it as, 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 as that as a necessary breakdown in order to provide the working earth from which the new trend of, re, of Christian reconstruction can uh, arise. Well, you know that not too long ago, one theologian for the mainline church said he thought it was possible the Calvinists had appeared on the world stage before their proper time and that this might be their proper time. I'm inclined to agree with that. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> it's interesting that truth is continually popping up in all areas of life now. Medical, economic, monetary, theological, social, in terms of family structure. And that truth is having trouble coming, coming to bear in terms of its fruition in society at large because of the institutional rigidity that exists today. It is the nature of these massive changes and breaks that, and breakdowns that, that, that really dissolve this institutional rigidity that allow this truth to really grow and flourish. And I think we're going to see an explosion of, of, uh, of prosperity in, 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 in the next, uh, past the year 2000 as a result of the changes that are taking place now already in terms of what I'm seeing by way of, of technological breakthroughs in the scientific realm done by, as, as we discussed, Christian men suggest that we have a glorious era ahead of us, literally a millennial era yeah. in, term, in terms of, of, of real human fulfillment and blessing as a byproduct of the theological base which precedes that blessing, oh, which is Christian reconstruction. Marvelous words. I couldn't agree more. Well, our time is virtually over, but I would suggest that all of those, all those of you who are listening to this, play it twice. Because this has been a particularly, uh, meaty and condensed discussion, and I think there is a great deal 
that has been said that you need to listen to twice because your future depends upon understanding what's ahead. Uh, it is important for those of us who are Christians to be ready, to be prepared, because we are the people God is telling uh, that we have a duty to occupy and to conquer in his name. And without a vision, the people perish. Yes. And you don't have a vision with regard to the future that's accurate unless you're in touch with reality. And being in touch with reality assumes both correct religious principles and the correct interpretation of facts in terms of those religious principles so that you can project the future accurately. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Otto, do you have a last word? In oh, no, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, our time is about up. Thank you all for listening, and thank you, Ari. It's always a pleasure to be with you, and we do appreciate the time you've given us. I've enjoyed being here again. Well, thank you. It's been our pleasure, too.